to us in his word in John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are we doing okay? All right, just checking in, just seeing how we're doing. <laughs> My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors in our downtown congregation. And, uh, I get to be out here occasionally um, to come out and preach, and uh, I'm so excited. Every time I get to come out here, you guys are so kind, and I feel like this is just a home away from home, and I've said that multiple times, but every time I come out here, I feel that all over again. So we're picking up today, if you're jumping in with us, um, in a series we've been in called Rhythms of Grace this summer, where we're looking at practices that Christians have taken up, disciplines, habits that Christians have taken up since the resurrection of Jesus. Um, one of the things I've loved about this series is that whether, uh, where, wherever we would find ourselves, so if we were to sort of parachute ourselves back into, I don't know, the 1500s or the or early parts of the first century, any part of the world, any time period since the resurrection of Jesus, what we're talking about in this series is stuff that Christians have been doing uh, at, at any point. We could shoot ourselves even over into modern-day Africa, and Christians would be doing the things we're talking about in this series. We're not trying to be innovative. We're not trying to... Um, give you a, a hack to the Christian life. We're actually trying to do something very old and go back to things that Christians have, again, have been doing, to repeat myself, uh, since the resurrection of Jesus. Things like prayer, regular habits of prayer, scripture reading, uh, giving, generosity, the Lord's Day, uh, fasting. Uh, today we're going to talk about the discipline, the practice of community. So uh, I love what we've been doing in this series. I hope it's been helpful for you. Uh, this morning, would you please pray for me as I'll pray for you, and then we'll open, open God's word together. Hey, take a second um, as you pray this morning and um, ask that God would give you new desires, new thoughts about your life with him. Ask that God would give you new thoughts and new desires in your life with him. Maybe pray for the person next to you that God would give them a renewed love for God and the things of God. If you would, take a second and pray for me that what we talk about today would make sense and be helpful. Father, we want to submit this time to you. Thank you so much for the singing today. Thank you for the chance to confess our sins and be assured that your gospel still reaches to us even in the midst of our inconsistencies. And we ask now that as we open your word that you would teach us, God. Would you help this to make sense? Would you help it to be helpful to us? That we would love your son, Jesus. That we would have a greater awareness of the Holy Spirit. That we would desire to love the Father and submit to his will. 
And so we offer this prayer and we offer ourselves now. In the name of Jesus we pray. And we all said, amen, amen. Well, uh, I'll never forget um, being a young 22-year-old minister fresh out of college and given a job, a full-time staff position at a church in Fort Worth, Texas. And they had asked me uh, as this young, fresh college graduate to start a college ministry, a, a ministry for college students and post-grads, young professionals. And so I was eager to do this, but in my mind, what I was about to do was going to be different. To this little church that I had been given an opportunity to serve in, I was going to bring revival. I was going to bring something that they had never seen before. The kingdom of God was about to take shape in this church in ways that they had never known because I was different. And I understood things about the kingdom of God that they did not, right? This was my mind. So it was going to be different. We were going to fight hard. I was going to start a ministry that was going to fight hard to not just be Sunday Christians, Right, A band of disciples that took Jesus seriously and living together between Sundays for his cause in the world. Revival was going to happen. I was going to start this ministry, and it was going to be cool. Like, you were going to want to come to this thing. You are going to want to be a part of it. We were going to have candles and stuff, and it was going to be awesome. You know? It was going to be a cool ministry. We were going to be devoted to Jesus. It was going to be this sort of this like hippie blend of like organic spiritual life and intentional formation under the preaching of God's word. It was gonna be cool, right? And it was all gonna start with sort of pulling together a few other leaders in the church that fit the age demographic that we were trying to reach. And I was gonna sort of cast the vision to them as to what this ministry was gonna look like and how we were going to reach the city and reach those in our age demographic. And I imagined the kind of people that were gonna come and be a part of our ministry. It was gonna be a cool ministry, so it was gonna have cool people in the ministry. We were there in Fort Worth, Texas, for whatever culture that they have that's worth anything, we were gonna reach the culture shapers, the influencers, those that were sort of in their 20s, uh, young professionals that were sort of into the, into the tipping point of their channels of culture. We are gonna reach them, they were gonna be a part of this thing, and then they were gonna reach their friends with the gospel of Jesus. And so it went. Once we launched the ministry, here's what's interesting. Once we launched the ministry and we had our first gatherings, we experienced growth. People came to this ministry, but they were not the people that I expected. They were not the people that I had envisioned. They were not the people that I cast this really cool vision that we were going to reach. In those first several months, people came and we became a, a real landing spot for the lonely. My ministry did. We became this place of belonging for people that were socially anxious. They didn't have to say it. It was just all over the way they operated and they came in. This place of belonging for them. We became this safe place to practice life and faith for those who were physically disabled and those who had learning disabilities. And this was a group of people that would hardly talk to one another. When we opened the doors, when we would host people in our home, they were a group of people who would hardly talk to one another. If it wasn't for my wife and I frantically moving about the room, shaking everyone's hand, making sure they all felt welcome and connected to what we were doing. Otherwise, they'd have sat there awkwardly just sort of looking at each other, waiting for the programming to start. This was a group of people that were really special to Jesus. A group of really special people over time to me and my wife, but these were not the people that I envisioned us doing ministry with. This is a group of people that Jesus had chosen and loved, but not the group of people that I would have chosen 
to love myself in those early days. This was a group of people that I look back were hand-selected. They were hand-selected by God for me to grow with. This is the group that he intended for me to grow as a disciple with. A group of people that he intended for me to learn to lead and to learn to love. And we were a group of people, maybe to say it as clearly as I can, that would have never otherwise been together if it weren't to Jesus. We would have never otherwise been together in the same room, sort of loving one another and trying to love. We would have never otherwise been together if it weren't for Jesus. We were a group of people that were together because of Jesus. We were a group of people that believed together with Christians since the resurrection, that we weren't just there with one another, but we were there with Jesus, that the resurrected Jesus was in our midst. We were there because of Jesus. We were there with Jesus. We were there under Jesus. He's our Lord and our King, and we were there for the glory of Jesus, because of Jesus, with Jesus, under Jesus, for Jesus. And I spell it out that way this morning because that is community. That's community. A group of people who would never otherwise be together if it weren't for Jesus. And this is a group of people that God had to confront me about over and over again. This confrontation I had with God in those early days happened repeatedly, where by the Holy Spirit, God would press on my heart, do you love me and do you love my people? Real people sitting right in front of you. Do you love me? And do you love my people, people who you probably wouldn't otherwise choose to be with? Do you love me and do you love my people or do you love the aesthetic that you prefer and your kind of people that you would rather be with? Do you love me and do you love my people? They're right here in front of you. Or do you love your preferred aesthetic, how they dress, how they talk, how they roll, what they listen to? your kind of people. You see, today we're gonna explore this practice, this rhythm of grace, this steady beat of God's presence in our life that's called the practice of Christian community that he's given to us to be formed as his people. And so on the one hand, as I open this sermon today, talking about community feels like maybe it's a bit strange that we would name as a Christian practice critical for Christian growth because you've probably caught on that we live in a current moment where community as a word, just as a word, community as a word, and community as a business model is intensely popular, (laughs) right? So here's what I mean. Coffee shops exist for community, right? Coffee for sure, but it's like coffee by yourself, that's no fun, right? Like coffee with, like there's, there's a really popular one in town that's like hip with frontliners, and it's like it's there for community, and they, they would even say so. That's a good thing, by the way. Taco Tuesday exists for community, not just tacos, right? Like, it exists to eat tacos with people. <laughs> so local craft breweries exist to hydrate people toward community. Like, there's ones that are even in our neighborhood downtown that will have, like, this mural where the word community is written on the wall, as if to say, let's drink together toward friendship, right? Coffee shops, Taco Tuesday, local craft breweries, gyms work to create fitness communities. So as a word and as a business model, 
Community is really popular, and the list could go on. So why should we single it out as a critical practice for Christian formation when everybody's doing it? On the other hand, though, track with me, while all those things are true about community as a popular buzzword and value system, while all of that's true, it could also be said, broadly describe us, that you and I are less anchored in real meaningful spiritual friendship than ever before. As a society, we're more anxious than ever before. As a society, we're more social on media platforms, not with people, but on media platforms. And most people would say, I don't know that I have a meaningful relationship where I'm truly known. I don't have a meaningful relationship where I'm truly known. So there's this massive gap. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's this massive gap between our value for community, the businesses we start to foster community, there's this massive gap between our value for community and our actual experience of meaningful community that pushes toward Christian formation. And just as an aside before we jump into the passage, like it's not surprising to me that community would be so popular in our day. Like it's, it's actually really popular, but it's not surprising to me that it would be popular in the same way that lots of things are popular that belong to God, but they're present in our culture with no desire for God. So here's what I mean by that. Like we want justice. That's really popular. We just don't want the God of justice. We want dignity for every single person, but we don't want the giver of life who gives dignity to every person as their creator, right? We want blessing, we just don't want what scripture calls the blessed God. We want peace, we just don't want the prince of peace. We want community, we want so badly to have meaningful relationships where we know and we are known, but we don't want the God who has existed eternally in a perfect community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't have what you want, but not have the God who gives it. And so isn't it fascinating, though, that the single thing, capital the thing that Jesus said would mark us as his people in the world. There's a lot of things that Christians are going to believe that are different than the value systems of the world. There's a lot of things that Christians will do and abstain from that are different than the world will do and abstain from. There's a lot of things that will mark Christians, but Jesus says the capital thing that will distinguish my people from the world would be community. Isn't that fascinating? The passage that I'm thinking of is a well-known one in John chapter 13. Community of a certain kind. By this, all people, he says, by this one thing, all people will know that you're my disciples. This will mark you out distinguished, uh, um, distinctly as Jesus' people. He says, it's the way you love one another. It's the way you love one another. Not just random sort of sentimental people out there, but actual real people, real faces with real stories and real names that are sitting right around you. It's the way you love one another in here that will have an effect out there. Christian community, Jesus says, is the thing that will mark my people as distinct from all peoples of the world. And so look back at the passage that was read to us in John chapter 17, and we'll jump in today. He says, I don't ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Jesus prays that we would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. John chapter 17, if you've not had any time in it, is an amazing window into the heart of Jesus, into the things that were most important to Jesus, into the things that were most pressing on Jesus in his relationship with the Father. Scholars have sort of named this chapter as the high priestly prayer. What's going on here is this was the last prayer that Jesus prayed before moving to his suffering. So you know the the scene of the Last Supper, the communion with the 12 disciples. This was the closer, this was the finale. The thing that wrapped up that meal together was this prayer. This was likely the last time the disciples heard the voice of Jesus at any length before he went to his suffering. And so this is his prayer with his boys before things got serious. You think about it in those terms, like this was the, this was the stuff that was the beating edge of his heart. This is the stuff that was most burdening him before he moves to his suffering. The stuff that like, if I don't get another prayer, I gotta pray this. If I don't get another chance to speak to my father, then I got to at least say this. And so the prayer is broken down in verses one to five. He prays this doxological prayer. It's this, God, I wanna glorify you in this moment. I want you to receive all the glory that you're due. And then in verses six to 19, he prays for his 12 disciples the boys that were sitting right around the table with him, even the betrayer Judas, hears this prayer. So he prays for them. Can you imagine what that must have been like to hear Jesus praying for you in your own hearing? And then he ends the prayer. The passage we're looking at today, he ends the prayer praying for the church, praying for disciples that would outlive his disciples. He's praying not only for them. He says it in verse 20. I pray not only for these but for those who would believe in me through their word. So he's praying, in short, for you and for me. And the last part of this prayer, he's praying for the modern church. And so notice, the few, notice a few things about this prayer as we're talking about this practice of community. The first thing I want you to notice is this. He prays for our oneness as our greatest witness to the world. He prays for our oneness as our greatest witness to the world. Sort of on repeat here, we'll move pretty quick. But he's not praying for an ambiguous oneness. He's not sort of praying for a metaphorical oneness. He's praying that there be a oneness with real people, with real stories, real faces that you're looking at, sharing a discipleship with, and that you would feel attached to one another because of that discipleship. That's what he's praying for. So maybe to put it in some different terms. It's really easy to be united to a people in sentiment. You know, I love that group of people over there. Oh, you do? What what are their names? I don't know. I just love them. I love that group of, oh, you do? What do you love about them? Just, I'm a loving person. It's really easy to love people out of sentiment, just out of feelings. It's a vibe I like to have. That's easy. But what Jesus is praying for is it's hard to be united to people, really. Regardless of what they're wearing, it may be attractive or not. When you get to know that person, their story, their insecurities, their anxieties, 
their inconveniences and still being attached to them. That's what he's praying for. Not sentiment, really. It's easy to be united to people in a large room one day a week like this. I love my church. I don't know the person in the back of the room, but I love them. It's easy to be united to a people one day a week in a large room, but it's hard to be united to a smaller group of people in a living room in the middle of the week. And that's what Jesus is praying for. It's not that you have to know everyone's name, but do you love one another? And not just an ambiguous one another, like an actual one another that maybe you share living rooms with, a community with, a regular practice with. This is what he's praying for, a boots on the ground unity. And notice even in verse 22, he says, the glory that you've given to me, I'm gonna give it to them so that they would be one. I don't know all of what Jesus is praying for in this passage, but he says somehow that the glory the Father has given to him, he's gonna give to you and me. He realized on some level, you collectively have the glory of God. You're carriers of the glory of the Son of God. And the reason he gives that to you is not just so you can walk around going, <laughs> I carry the glory of God. Well, the reason he gives that to you is that somehow, by sharing himself with you, you would share yourselves with one another, that they would be one. Somehow, him sharing himself with us means that we ought to share ourselves with each other. So the first thing is that our oneness would be our greatest witness to the world. Pick up with me on the second thing here, and this one's, this one's a bit complex, but track with me. He wants our oneness together to flow from his oneness with the Father and our union with him. Don't sleep on this one. This one's wild to me. This was brand new as I studied this passage. He wants our oneness together to flow from his oneness with the Father and our union with him. I'll show you what I'm talking about in the passage. 22, he says, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus talking to the Father. He wants us to be one just like he and the Father are one. Okay, we get that. Verse 23, he says again, I in them, and Father, you in me, so that they could become perfectly one, sharing his glory with us. But then he blows the lid off of this thing in verse 21. He says, I'm praying that they would all be one just as, in the same way, just like Father, and just like you are in me, and just like I'm in you, here's where he blows the lid off, that they may also be in us. Do you catch what Jesus is praying here? Father, just like I know you, and just like you know me, Father, just like I'm committed to you, and just like you're committed to me, in just that same way, I want them to be in us. What Jesus is praying here is that just like he knows the Father, he wants you to know the Father. Just like the Father enjoys Jesus, he wants you to enjoy him. Just like Jesus knows the faithfulness and the presence of the Holy Spirit, just like I'm in you and you're in me, I want them to be involved with us in just the same way. Here's where this blows the lid off for me. I've taken my relationship with God as serious as I know how. But reading this passage, I'm like, I don't know that I've ever taken my relationship with God serious to the degree that Jesus prays it here. To the degree that I know the Father, I intend for my people to know the Father. To the degree that I enjoy the presence and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, I'm designing it such that 
you would enjoy the presence and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit just as the Father's in me, that they would also be in us. I want to show you this painting that captures something of what I, I think Jesus is praying here. It's a painting I came across years ago and made me think of it this week studying this passage. This is a painting by a Russian Catholic. His name is Andrei Rublev. It's from the 1400s, 1420s. Scholars believe it's called the Holy Trinity. And there's some artistic liberties taken here that we probably wouldn't agree with, but in essence, there's so much going on here that we don't have time to talk about all of it. What he's trying to communicate in this painting is the community, the eternal community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, depicted from right to left, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, their oneness together and their distinction. So a few things about the painting. Each of them are sitting on the same size throne. And each of them have a halo around their head. He's trying to communicate the co-equality of the Trinity, that the Son and the Spirit aren't any less God than the Father, right? The co-equality of the Trinity. But if you also notice the mutuality, the community of the Trinity, where the Son and the Holy Spirit have their heads bent toward the Father with their hands on the table as if to say we're in submission to your will. There's a mutuality, a, a glorifying of one another. Above the Father, you'll notice there's a house showing the hospitality and the provision of the Father where Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'll go prepare a place for you. Above the Son, there's this tree as if to depict the tree of life, but also the wood of his suffering that brings life to many. Above the Spirit, there's this rock as if to say, the Spirit of God is the one who brings the power and the presence of the kingdom of God into the world. Like there's a thousand things the artist is doing I'm not even scratching the surface. But the reason I show it today, because of what Jesus is praying here, just like Father, you're in me, and just like I'm in you, I want them to be in us. The reason I'm showing you this is because the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit have existed together eternally in a perfect community. And they're sitting at this four-sided table, but only three sides of the table are filled. And what Andre Rublev, the painter, was trying to communicate in this painting with the wonder and the majesty of the triune God, three yet one, perfect in a holy society with himself, he's trying to say that as the observer, you and me are not only meant to witness God in his relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we're meant to come in and welcomed as a participant. In the same way, Father, that I am in you, and that you are in me, I'm praying that my people would be caught up into us, that they would know us in the same way that we know each other. It's an amazing thing. So where I wanna draw this out, what does this have to do with community? It's how God has existed together perfectly forever. Relationship for you and me with one another is inescapable if we have relationship with God because this is who he is. You see, Christian community is about formation Because what we're doing in Christian community is we're actually practicing the presence of the living God who has invited you and he's invited me and he's invited the person across the living room into relationship with himself individually and now also we share that collectively because we name a common father. 
We name a common older brother. We share in common the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that now what's happening in community, brother and sister aren't just things we call one another when we forget each other's names. Hey, brother. Brother and sister aren't just things we call one another when we forget our names. It's what we are together because the bloodline of Calvary has bound us together as family. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, we are in Him and we're together in Him. We are family. Christian community is about learning to be rehabilitated into healthy relationships across genders, across races, across socioeconomic standing because we really are family. Do you realize that you have more in common with the person across the room that you've never met who is a disciple in Jesus than you have with your own blood family who aren't Christians. You will spend forever with one and only a temporary time with the other. We really are family. You may not think you have anything in common with the person sitting on the sofa by themselves across the living room at your community group who showed up too early and now it's sort of awkwardly waiting there for the rest of the group to arrive. You may not think you have anything in common with that person, but you realize you will spend trillions of years with that person and you'll know their name in a glorified reality with the living God. Community is rehab. It's rehab. We're learning to have healthy relationships again. Community is a witness to the world from the overflow that we actually are one with God. Just as the Son is in the Father, that we would also be in Him. The third thing I want you to see today is that our unity is evidence of God's love for us. Our unity is evidence of God's love for us. And so you've heard it said we, in the, earlier in the sermon that our love for one another is a witness to the world but he prays here that our unity would be a witness to the world also of God's love for us. This was <laughs> brand new for me as I opened this passage. Notice again in 23. He says, I in them and you in me so that they may be perfectly one. And notice why he wants this. Notice why he's praying this. So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them. I want them to be one, God, so that the world would know that you've loved them as you've loved me. So think about this. As Christians, we're all kinds of things. You could describe us in all kinds of ways in the negative. We're hypocritical. If you're not a Christian here today, I just want to own it. As believers in Jesus, we're hypocrites. I'm not bragging about that. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying that we fail our God more often than we should. We know more stuff about our faith than we actually practice. We may be hypocritical. We may be imperfect. We seem to stumble more than we can seem to walk. We find ourselves repenting of the same kinds of sins over and over again. But Jesus is saying, may it be true in the midst of your hypocrisy, your imperfections, and your, your, your serial repenting for the same sins, may it be true that you actually love one another. And here's why. It's as though he's wanting the world to look at us and say, how can they love each other? How is it that group of people can keep loving each other? They're hypocrites. Why do they keep loving each other? They're imperfect. They fail their God and they fail one another all the time. How can they keep loving each other? They're imperfect. How can they do it? 
And it's as if he wants the answer to be, well, they must love one another with all their warts. They must keep showing up in each other's living rooms over and over with all their warts and with the weird smells that show up in their house and not aren't in your house. They must keep loving one another with all their warts because God loves them. Let them be one so that the world would know that God loves them. You say, who else but God? Who else could do this? God gathers together a ragtag group of people. That's what you are. That's what I am. We're ragtag. We are a weird group of people. Who else but God could gather together a group of people like us and not become guilty by association, right? Like that's what you always hear. You're sort of known by the company you keep. Well, this is the company that God keeps, people like you and me. That he could gather together such a ragtag group of people like us and not become guilty by association, but somehow be glorified by his association with us. Why? Because his love is so great that what kind of love is this? That he would call them sons and daughters. Gather us together. That our oneness is a witness to the world that God loves us and it's available for them if they would look to the Son. So with closing today and some application Maybe to say it plain, without the ongoing practice, so think about this with me, without the ongoing practice of Christian community, we cannot obey this beautiful prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. We can't do it. We have this beautiful, amazing prayer where Jesus is inviting us into the fellowship of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's this breathtaking, kind of confusing, abstract, but also I gotta know more about what you're praying there, Jesus. This beautiful prayer, but without Christian community, we can't step into and we can't obey the thing that was on the beating edge of his heart before his suffering. We've gotta have community for that. And there are different ways that this could look, right? But in our church, we call it community groups. Smaller gatherings where both Christians and non-Christians are welcome to come and share faith and life together. These, these gatherings happen all over the town, all over the different counties represented between Sundays for the purpose of learning to be Jesus people. That's why they exist. Our community groups, <laughs> and many of you are in them, our community groups are groups of people who would never otherwise be together if it weren't for Jesus. You would never otherwise gather together if it were, you're together because of Jesus, just like me in that early community that I started. You're together because of Jesus. You're together with Jesus. You're together under Jesus. You're together for Jesus. And it's really popular in our context to look for the lowest level of Christian commitment. You're like, okay, fine. I hear what you're saying about community groups, but I come to Sundays. Isn't that enough? I do Sundays. Like, I want to look for the lowest bar of sort of involvement and still get away with it all. I, I do Sundays. Isn't that enough? And I'll just say this. You can't get around the invitation to real Christian community if you're going to follow Jesus. You can't get around it. You can't escape it. It's going to keep showing up when you read the Bible honestly. It's going to keep showing up when you attend the Lord's Day with his people together. It's going to keep showing up. You can't escape it. You can't get around it. And you will flame out without it. You'll flame out without it because you weren't designed to live without it. And so I hear a few objections always when I think about this. I say, well, I've tried community, but it didn't work. <laughs> I've tried community, but it just it didn't work. 
And I'd, I'd actually love to hear with what you mean by it didn't work. I know that the staff here at this congregation would love to hear what you mean by that because likely we probably have something to learn from your story. But I would say, whatever your definition of not working is, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not like you can just sort of figure out your own new way of discipleship. You know what I've done? I've tried what Jesus said and it didn't work, so I've developed my new way of Christianity as if you're the one who starts that. I know what Jesus says about being one together and loving one another, but it didn't work, so I've got this new thing. And it's sort of a me and God thing. I don't really need people. I just sort of, and I attend church occasionally to have a well-rounded spirituality, but it's really just a me and God thing. It's really popular in the Bible Belt. And I would just say a me and God discipleship is not a discipleship that the Bible understands. Whatever a me and God faith is, is not Christianity. It's something of your own making. Because Jesus, the beating edge of his heart before he goes to his suffering, is he's like, I want people who would never otherwise be together to be together because that's what I've come into the world to do, to show that God reconciles not just God and man, but man to man. The second thing I hear an objection about is, well, I've tried community, but I got hurt. I've tried community, but, but people hurt me that I, I trusted. And that's super popular, sadly, in the Bible Belt. And if that's your story, like genuinely, I'd want to say I'm sorry. I've been hurt too. I don't mean to minimize your pain or your struggle, but our church leadership, since the very beginning Frontline started, we've sought to be a place where hurt people could come and heal again specifically like church hurt people. We'd love to figure out if we can be a part of your, of your healing. But here's still what I would say to people who have been church hurt. Don't chunk what Jesus is saying because of your experience with other sinners. We are sinners. And I would say probably the healthy thing to do would be remove yourself as you've probably done from the situation that hurt you. But over time, start over again. Start over again somewhere else and learn, and learn to open yourself again to the pattern of Jesus. And here's the last thing today. We have to call, we have to call Christian community a discipline. It actually is a discipline. Christians since the resurrection have understood it as a discipline. And it's a discipline because there is going to come times when it's time for your group. It's Wednesday night. We're showing up at the house in the neighborhood, we're showing up at the house in the community. It's a discipline because Wednesday night will come and you will not want to go. It's a discipline. Just like other things are disciplines, your diet is a discipline because you actually want the ding dong. You want the cupcake. You want the hostess snack, right? You're like, no, I actually don't want that. But you understand why I'm calling your diet a discipline. It's a discipline because you're giving yourself to something that you probably wouldn't otherwise give yourself to. Community is the same way. But here's what I want to say about that. You've got to show up when you don't want to show up because community is not about you. It's not about you. Community is not about you. It will grow you. Let me be clear, Christian. Community, like merging your life in oneness with other Christians, will grow you. But it's not about you. Here's what I mean by that. Two, two quick phrases. Community is not primarily about what you receive, which is what we most 
think about it. I'm going to be this, this part of this community group because of what I get out of it. No. Community is a discipline because you've got to go and you don't want to because it's not about what you receive but about what you offer. Every single one of you in this room has a story. Every single one of you in this room could probably identify moments where God's been faithful to you in your story. Every one of you in this room is a blood-bought trophy of the grace of Jesus Christ. And other people need your story. Other people need your insights. You might not think you have anything to offer, but you might just have something to say in group on that Wednesday night that will be meaningful to the person across the living room that you haven't connected with, and it will endure their faith for another week. (laughs) Community is not about what you receive. It's about what you offer. But on the other hand, there's others of you who go, I'm so glad you said that because I have a lot to offer. (laughs) And you're the person in the room who goes, Actually, I'm going to group because I have so much to offer. People need to hear my insights. They need to hear what I'm thinking. In fact, I've got a blog. In fact, I've got a book. In fact, I'm writing a book, and you guys need to buy my book. I'm here because you guys need to hear what I have to say. So while I say community is not about what you receive but what you offer, if you're the kind of person who thinks you have a lot to offer, I would say community is not about what you offer but what you receive. (laughs) But what you receive If you think you have a lot to offer, the grace of God in community for you is that you would see that his kingdom is moving forward just fine and people haven't heard what you have to say. That his kingdom is moving forward just fine. That people are obeying Jesus and they've never read your tweets. And it's okay. There's actually this mutuality and this giving that's happening in community. If you think you have nothing to offer, you're precisely the person that we need to have something offered. If you think you have everything to offer, you're precisely the person who needs to learn that you have something to receive from those who would think they have nothing to offer. Right now, our groups are on a break, and every group leader in the room said, thanks be to God. My living room needed a break. Our groups will kick back up in August. And so if you're not in a group, I would love for you to ask questions. This is not a place to commit, but it's a place to ask questions, find information as our groups fire up back in August. But I want to end today by reading again this prayer from Jesus. Because this prayer from Jesus is sort of rooting us in a reality that Father, Son, Holy Spirit have existed together in a perfect community. And he's asking, God, would you bring them into us? Notice what he says in 17. I don't ask only for these, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That they would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they would be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them so that they would become one, just like we're one. I in them and you in me, that they would become perfectly one so that the world would know that you've sent me and that you've loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of God to us.